2: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there.
3: Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Ladies and Gospada, это Prevail and your ведущий Greg, Greg, Greg Ollier. Ollier.
0: I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. In August of 2020, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released Volume 5 of its report on Russian active measures campaigns and interference in the 2016 election, which presented its findings on counterintelligence threats and vulnerabilities. While well-written and easy to follow, volume 5 is almost a 1,000 pages long, with voluminous footnotes and ample redactions. So you throw in the torrent of news at that time, the requisite Republican gaslighting, and the Don Jr. on his third line of Coke attention span of the national news media, and it's no great surprise that what should have been a bombshell was more of a dud, even though the committee, in its wisdom, helpfully placed its key finding right up front. The committee found that the Russian government engaged in an aggressive, multifaceted effort to influence or attempt to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Read that again. Russian government. Aggressive. Multifaceted. This is not just a bunch of Democrats making this claim. The committee is bipartisan. Even died in the wool Trumpist collaborators like Tom Cotton and John Cornyn were compelled to sign off on this. The report stopped short of explicitly accusing the Trump campaign of reciprocity, of taking an active role in embracing the aid that Russia so generously bestowed. Even so, most of the Republicans on the committee, Senators Rich, Rubio, Blunt, Cotton, Cornyn, and Sass, felt the need to add this addendum to the report. Volume 5 exhaustively reviews the counterintelligence threats and vulnerabilities to the 2016 election, but never explicitly states the critical fact the committee found no evidence that then-candidate Donald Trump or his campaign colluded with the Russian government in its efforts to meddle in the election. Note that this addendum was not signed by Richard Burr the then chair of the committee. Note also that Burr was removed from that post by his fellow Republicans and put under investigation by the FBI for alleged insider trading almost immediately after he completed the report. This suggests a major disagreement between Senator Burr and Senators Risch, Rubio, Blunt, Cotton, Cornyn, and Sass. Make no mistake, the GOP addendum, with its use of the vague, non-legal term
3: colludelg,
0: existed so that Trump could continue using his no-collusion rallying cry unabated. Marco Rubio, who succeeded Burr as chair of the committee, cock-blocked the release of Volume 5 in the same way Bill Barr cock-blocked the release of the Mueller report. Marco Rubio is a fucking traitor, okay? He is. But the fact is, the committee did find that Paul Manafort, The chair of the Trump campaign from May through August of 2016, and a key advisor before and after that period, coordinated his efforts with Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian intelligence officer who specializes in election meddling. Indeed, the very first section of Volume 5 concerns Manafort's deep, long-standing, and unequivocal ties to Kremlin operatives, relationships that continued throughout 2016. Let me say this again. In 2016, the chair of the Trump campaign worked closely with a Kremlin election saboteur, covertly sending him polling data. Not a coffee boy. The chair of the campaign, the guy in charge, working with a Russian spy. Not just any spy, one who specializes in election fuckery. Now, while Senators Rish, Rubio, Blunt, Cotton, Cornyn, and Sass may have found no evidence that the Trump campaign colluded. They found ample evidence that the chair of that campaign coordinated, conspired with, worked with, sought advice from, and otherwise got help from Russians with close ties to Vladimir Putin. Cooperation is the word the Democrats on the committee, Senators Heinrich, Feinstein, Wyden, Harris, and Bennett, employ in their addendum, which goes like this. The committee's bipartisan report found that Paul Manafort, while he was chairman of the Trump campaign, was secretly communicating with a Russian intelligence officer with whom he discussed campaign strategy and repeatedly shared internal campaign polling data. This took place while the Russian intelligence operation to assist Trump was ongoing. Further. Manafort took steps to hide these communications and repeatedly lied to federal investigators and his deputy on the campaign destroyed evidence of communications with the Russian intelligence officer. The committee obtained some information suggesting that the Russian intelligence officer, with whom Manafort had a long-standing relationship, may have been connected to the GRU's hack and leak operation targeting the 2016 U.S. election. This is what collusion looks like. This is what collusion looks like. Why wasn't that the headline in the New York fucking Times? Today's show is a little bit longer than usual because this is an expansive topic and I have two guests today, which I'm thrilled about. I have Allison Green at Grassroots Speak on Twitter, longtime researcher. She's been on this for you know well over 4 years I have Aaron Harris who on Twitter is clearing the fog he's also written a piece for me at prevail the one about the Ukraine thing which was excellent these are two really super smart people who are well versed in volume 5 and even though they didn't know each other at all before this I decided to have them both on so that we could all kind of sit around and talk about everything in that report which is obviously it's a thousand page report so there was a lot to talk about So, without further ado, here I am with Allison and Aaron. Let's get to it.
3: And now, Alex Jones reads a poem by Shel Silverstein.
0: Yes, we'll walk with a walk that is measured and slow, and we'll go where the chalk-white arrows go, for the children they mark, and the children they know the place where the sidewalk ends.
3: That was Alex Jones reading up home by Shel Silverstein. And now back to the program.
0: Okay, this is a first now for the Prevail podcast. I have two guests today because we have to talk about such an expansive topic, which is volume five. These are two people I've been following for a long time, two of the smartest people I know, great researchers. Uh, we have Aaron Harris, Clearing the Fog. How are you, Aaron?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Greg. How are you doing
0: today? I am. I'm very well. Aaron also wrote a piece uh, for Prevail about Paul Ryan and Ukraine and all that stuff last October. So I encourage you to go check that out. And we have Allison Green, Grassroots Speak on Twitter. And you're now uh, writing for DC Report with David K. Johnson. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me, Greg. I, it,
0: it, I'm, I'm happy you came on. You were the inspiration for this particular episode because you wrote a piece uh, a little while back about Marco Rubio and volume five. Marco Rubio was the Republican senator who replaced Burr after Burr got let go
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, as chairman, of the Senate Intelligence Committee and of course that's what volume 5 is and i'm going to let me start with that before we get get actually get started great the official title report of the select committee on intelligence united states senate on russian active measures campaigns and interference in the 2016 us election volume 5 counterintelligence threats and vulnerabilities so when we say volume 5 that's what we that's what we refer to right? (laughs) This is a a thousand page document. It's impeccably well-researched. It is well-written. It reads very well, much better, I think, than than even the Mueller report does. And as we say, it's damning. It's a damning document. It is. (laughs) On Prevail, I've been slowly going through and taking bits and pieces of it. I've, I've done two so far. I did Paul Manafort and I did George Papadopoulos and try to just dive into that aspect of volume five and sort of tell the story in my choice of words. But I want to start with you, Allison. Why don't you tell us a little bit about
2: Rubio? Sure. So um, the way this came about, the Marco Rubio piece that I did for DC Report is actually part two. Part one really focused on um, something that happened on January 6th, that fateful day, and because it happened on, on January 6th, that originally kind of got lost in the shuffle. But the um, intelligence community actually came out, and there was an inspector general's report that admitted that the intelligence appointees at the top levels were actually manipulating and strategically hiding national intelligence in order to downplay Russian interference in Donald Trump. As I was doing that piece and researching it, I realized that there was something that actually happened in parallel. Not only were the intelligence community kind of manipulating and downplaying Russian interference... But there had been a three-year investigation by the Senate Intelligence Committee on what the relationship was between Russia and and the Trump campaign. And when that came out, it actually came out in a way that reminded me very much of how Bill Barr, Hmm. it's going to get confusing, we talk about Barr and we're going to talk about Burr later, (laughs) but this is... Bill Barr, what he did to the Mueller report, Marco Rubio, essentially Bill Barr, the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I realized that this was something that was kind of flying under the radar. Um, The report had been released last August, literally 77 days before the election, when people were distracted between Corona and between the presidential election, and one of the things that struck me is that when the report came out not many people had read the thousand pages yeah. and when you actually read the thousand pages it's really damning about the level of of interactions between the trump campaign and the Ru- and the and russia and yet even though this report clearly said Russia interfered with our elections and the Trump campaign were smack dab in the middle of it. Rubio came out with a press release at the time that said, after exhaustive research, we can clearly say there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, which when you read the facts contained in the report is an outright lie that he really kind of got away with. In
0: a way, it says it's right up front, it says right up front, the committee found that the Russian government engaged in an aggressive, multifaceted effort to influence or attempt to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. I'm sorry, Aaron, what were you going to say? I, I was just going to say it's, it's interesting, right, that they uh, they sort of they
1: got in front of the Mueller, the, the Mueller report very early by starting this collusion narrative, right? They, they started using this word that doesn't have a legal definition that is very, uh, you say, subjective, right, in nature. And so that they could say that there's no collusion. There's no, they never said there's no conspiracy. They never said there's no, you know, coordination. contacts. Yeah. Right. No, there's nothing provable. They, they, they started out using this really subjective phrase, no collusion, and, which, and they decided to make that their narrative going forward because it's not something that you can disprove, right? So I just thought it was really interesting the way they pre-framed it that way.
0: Almost like they knew what was going to be in there. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? funny, funny that the there's a line in, in the report. I think it's in the at the end in the part written by the Democratic senators that says this is what collusion looks like, which should have been yes. on the fucking front page of every newspaper in the country for a week after. But, of course, wasn't because, Absolutely. I don't know, Trump wanted to buy Greenland or something.
2: I don't know. Some
0: <laughs> Dumb thing happened and they can't get out of their way. These people. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, the Democrats were absolutely trying on this committee, very obviously, to sound the alarms. Because this is Volume 5, and we should say Volume 5 was predated by Volumes 1 through 4. And Volumes 1 through 4, each of them were pretty much between 100 and 200 pages, and they were taking very much smaller topics. Volumes 1 through 4, one of the interesting things was they steered very clear of how the Trump campaign was involved in it. Volumes one through four lay out that Russia interfered with our elections, clearly. And it looks as though they were having, they were grappling internally in this this committee and the Democrats were trying to to call it out all along the way. Um, So, you know, as you say, the, the Democrats were really the ones who said there's clear collusion. Yet when when the press release by Marco Rubio came out, he said, and I quote, we can say without any hesitation that the committee found absolutely no evidence that then candidate Donald Trump or his campaign colluded with the Russian government to meddle in the 2016 election. Just at the top, I just want to state This report clearly shows that there were actually two people who were involved with Russian intelligence, one being a Russian intelligence officer and one being, in his own words, on the books with Russian intelligence, who were actually working with and for the Trump campaign. So how do you say, yeah, we have a campaign who was embedded with Russian intelligence officers, but... Exhaustively, there was no collusion.
0: <laughs> not not even just Russian intelligence officers. In the case of Konstantin Klimbek, who was Manafort's buddy and yes. right hand man, this is a Russian intelligence officer who specializes in fucking with elections. That's Absolutely. what that's what he does for a living. This
2: for- I mean, yeah. I mean, we actually have seen. I'm I'm fairly obsessed with the 2006 photo of Manafort and Kalimnik in a like some kind of random workplace conference room because they've been working on elections very obviously for for decades together.
0: <laughs> right. Not and not just here, but in places like oh, Ukraine, which is much much larger. I think. In volume five and in general than most people realize.
2: Correct. And just to be clear, the two people that I was referring to being embedded in the campaign, one was Kalimnik, who the report clearly states is a Russian intelligence officer. Oh, yeah. Who the report also, and I think you're going to cover this, Greg, exhaustively covers how Kalimnik and Manafort were basically almost I mean, they were they, they were BFFs. Um, and they were working hand in hand along the way. So one of the ones I was referring to was Kalimnik. The other one is Carter Page clearly stated, I'm on the books with Russian intelligence. And that's kind of a, a thing that also kind of gets lost in a lot of shuffles. So two people <laughs> who are, are key in the campaign and and their relationships with Russian intelligence. So those were the two that I was referring to as well. Kalimnik, by the way, the FBI has just, since the Biden administration came in, the FBI has upped the ante on the award they're actually giving for information related to Kalimnik. There's now a $250,000 award for the capture of Constantine Kalimnik, and just to put it in perspective, I don't think that anybody would argue that finding the people who planted the pipe bombs on January 6th, that's a clear priority for the U.S. government, but the award for them in the FBI on information leading to the pipe bomb is 100000 and Kalimnik, it's 250000 That just goes to show how much that they are focused on getting this guy.
0: Well, I hope they get him because he obviously he knows a lot, but he's almost the Manafort Kalimnik piece. It's almost so obvious in a way that it, I I think it's obviousness. It's like his ostrich skin coat or ostrich feather coat. You know, it's so (laughs) egregious that you almost can't believe how fucking obvious it is. This is a guy who was brought into the campaign. I'm talking about Manafort now. Brought into the campaign when it was still sort of floundering in February, March of 16. Once he takes over the campaign, that's around the same time that the social media gets hooked in with Cambridge Analytica and begins to really make progress. That's also the time that all the meetings with the Russians start. That's around the time of the Mayflower Hotel conference that Trump had where he said he promised a good deal to Russia, where he met Kislyak. That thing was organized by Kushner, who... Figured out who Dmitri Symes was from Henry Kissinger of all people, but it's, it was when Manafort went in there. I think that was the domino that pushed this all forward. And right. a lot of folks
1: don't see the you know don't understand the context. You know, in the history of Ukraine, right? Essentially, you have the same guy Manafort who worked on behalf of Putin to help get a president elected in Ukraine. Um, using some of the same people like Kalimnik, and essentially broke down Ukraine's democracy and attacked their institutions and looted the treasury, and the president fled at the end of it. Fast forward a few years, 2016, you have Paul Manafort trying to get somebody elected in the United States, working with Konstantin Kalimnik. It's the it, you know it's just the same playbook. It, like you said, it's it's just so obvious that, that it's like it's too obvious to really believe.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. about doing something in plain sight. I mean, Trump, remember, t- Trump went on TV and said, Russia, if you're listening, find the emails. Like, that right there, just that act is collusion. I mean, it is. It's, he's, he's communicating with Russia, asking them to commit a, a crime uh, on his behalf. I mean, I don't, you know, everybody laughs it off, but if anybody else had done that, I mean, could you imagine if if Joe Biden was on? I hate when people do this, by the way. I hate this. I well, what if Obama did? What if Joe right. Biden went on the stage of the debate and said, Beijing, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> we would never, never fucking hear the end of it. We would never hear the end of it. And Trump done, And it's just out of out of the news cycle in an hour. And that's just, you know, that's just how the stuff goes.
2: Some of the things that like, I mean, I, I was really bowled over because I considered myself as keeping up with all of this stuff. And, you know, first of all, it was so obvious that there was a strategic campaign to get Manafort into that position. Mm -hmm. And to the point where I personally loved the the report talks about Ivanka Trump ultimately shared an email where they were kind of campaigning to her to get her father to hire Paul Manafort. And she shared the email with her father with a handwritten note that said, Daddy, Tom says we should get Paul as in Paul <laughs> Manafort. And I was like, oh my God. So we they undertook this, this targeted campaign to get Paul Manafort into the, the most senior position with the Trump campaign. And he was then absolutely bragging about getting into this position with Kalimnik, who was very lockstep with him along the way. And I think Kalimnik knew probably before most of America knew that Paul Manafort was the Trump campaign manager. And I, I the, the report shows an email that Manafort emailed to Kalimnik asking how his role with the Trump campaign could be leveraged to collect the money owed to him because Manafort felt that he was owed millions by Ukraine oligarchs, you know, or oligarchs that were Tied up in this Russia Ukraine position. So what about the fact that you've got the campaign manager who's basically said, Okay, I'm in. Now how are we gonna leverage the hell out of this position so that I can get money in my pocket? There's right. And he nothing did nothing more corrupt than that.
1: Right. He worked for the campaign for free, right? Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> he, he, uh, There was a great line in the report that that said that a lot of people believed that that was the reason Trump hired him, because he was going to work for free. But then he's (laughs) going and talking to Russian interference and saying, OK, I agreed to work for free. Now get me the millions of dollars that I want from Ukraine oligarchs. So, yeah, pretty corrupt.
0: He was also in trouble with Deripaska, Manafort was. I I think he owed money to Deripaska or Deripaska thought that Manafort owed him money. And part of that leveraging was to say OVD, meaning uh, Oleg Deripaska. I don't know what, what the V stands for. You know, He was hoping that this would also maybe get him out of debt somehow and back into the good graces of this kind of really sinister Russian oligarch. So all of this stuff is happening right in plain sight. By the way, Manafort was at the Trump Tower meeting also with with Don Jr. and Kushner, with yes. uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya and the other emissaries th- th- that were sent there. And getting back to Tom said we should hire Paul, daddy, or whatever. <laughs> That's Tom Barrick and it's Paul Manafort. And these people have known each other for years. Right. Manafort and Stone were in business together like a million years ago, before I was born, basically. And yeah, I
2: mean, in the 60s or something, the, Stone was like the head of the Republican committee or something with Manafort, wasn't he?
0: But Manafort, Black Manafort, whatever, I think it was 1970 that it started, where they basically invented the idea of foreign lobbying, lobbying foreign governments. And Stone has been advising Trump for his various political campaigns since the gate, I mean, from the 70s. Right. So. These guys all know each other. It's not some mystery to Trump who Manafort had an apartment in Trump Tower. He knows who he knows who he knew who Manafort was. Another point that should be made while we're talking about Manafort is that Manafort picked the vice president. I think that's also kind of important. Often overlooked. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, because Trump did not want Pence. Trump wanted either Chris Christie or Newt Gingrich, people he knew and were, was comfortable with. He didn't know Mike Pence. And they had that thing happen where they they faked the flat tire on the Trump Force One to get him to stay overnight in Indianapolis and meet with Mike Pence. And Manafort arranged that, you know.
2: Which so, basically could also be read to mean that Russia arranged it. It could, yes. It could. I'm not, you know, I mean... The, the thing is, is that Manafort was very connected with Russia and Kalimnik actually, when I'm saying that, you know, Kalimnik actually made a comment to somebody again in an email, where he said that Manafort is very smart. And if Trump listens to his advice, Trump will become president. Okay, so this is during the campaign, he's basically, Kalimnik is saying, I'm feeding stuff to Manafort, if Trump listens to Manafort, he will become president, and then Kalimnik went on to say that Manafort would have a position in the cabinet, so Kalimnik is is kind of already talking about cabinet positions in the background with people, like, these are the little things that are in the report that to me, just clearly show how Russian influence was directing the campaign. So when you actually say that Manafort chose Pence, it's it's the question is who's behind Manafort in in making those decisions as well.
1: Right. I mean, you know, just volume five, you know, you know, as you've already said, it's just so it just lays it out so clearly. One of my favorite parts is basically just a small summary paragraph in there. It says, it is our conclusion, I'm reading it here, I have it on my screen. It says, it is our conclusion, based on the facts detailed in the committee's report, that the Russian intelligence services assault on the integrity of the 2016 U.S. electoral process, and Trump and his associates' participation in and enabling of this Russian activity, represents one of the single most grave counterintelligent threats to American national security in the modern era. I mean, that is a powerful statement. That's and that's a pretty, st-
2: powerful yeah. statement that kind of got missed yeah, when right. it came out in, in August of 2018 because the press release that Rubio said is, there's absolutely no evidence <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when, when there's, there's tons in here. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things, I'll go back for a second to some of the Rubio piece which is that they knew that this was chock full of collusion. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there couldn't; these relationships were so clear, and yet they they played spin doctor with it. One of my favorite parts when we when we're talking about the Manafort Kalimnik relationship, they actually used spy techniques to communicate <laughs> to each other as well. And I loved the whole, did you see the email foldering thing?
1: Oh yeah, right.
2: I mean, that's fascinating to me. So the way that they actually communicated with each other, Manafort and Kalimnik, was they shared an email account. And when they wanted to get a message to one another, they would go into this shared email account that they could both access. And they would create a draft email that says anything that they want to say that they didn't want people to be able to see these emails or whatever. And then they had like, I mean, they had bat signals, they had bat phones, they had all of these codes and they would text to each other and be like, um... Check the updated travel schedule, which was the code to log into the drafts folder to read the message that the they, the other one wanted them to read so that they can secretly do it. I mean, these are actual, it's called foldering, which I didn't know was a, a, a very well-known spy technique. And
0: Petraeus, Petraeus got in trouble for doing that with that woman, his biographer that he was uh, having the affair with. You're right, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. The, the, um...
2: Kolemnik was doing it with Sam Patton, who was arrested as well as part of all of this.
0: Now, what people don't realize is that the email address was actually "I am a Russian asset" at gmail <laughs> So,
2: now I think yeah. you're kidding, right? I didn't see right. that. But.
0: No, but if it was if, if it was in there, it wouldn't Russian it Federation wouldn't even, back channel. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> But I mean, I, you're, the reason I want to clarify is I am
0: kidding. Yeah,
2: the WikiLeaks <laughs> section on Don Jr. Do you you remember that piece? So this is actually true in the report (laughs) is that WikiLeaks actually, when they were doing the whole Hillary's campaign emails thing, Mm -hmm. WikiLeaks contacted Don Jr. and gave him a username and a password to a secret you know, a secret online database that was collecting all of this oppo research about them. And that one was called, um, hold on, I think it was, it was either PutinTrump.org or (laughs) (laughs) TrumpPutin.org. And I mean... That was hysterical to me, too, because in the footnotes of that of that story in the report, there is something that screamed out to me because in the footnotes, um, it actually said that the the special counsel's office chose and actually deliberately chose not to prosecute Don Jr., for computer crimes, for having logged in to this TrumpPutin.org site. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, he's <laughs> basically engaging in, in computer crimes to get the dirt on on Hillary. But again, just so that we're clear, Rubio's press release states there is absolutely no collusion. Oh,
0: <laughs> none whatsoever. No, not now, yep. I was going to say, Junior brings up another guy torsion because when alexander torsion was being prosecuted in spain the spanish district attorney or attorney general said if i was the president's son i would be nervous about this and aaron you were gonna you were gonna talk a little bit about torsion the nra and super spy right so you know know, yeah yeah, the, the nra
1: story is kind of a it's a thorny topic especially for conservatives right i mean I'm from the south i grew up in the south born and raised uh, you know I, I grew up around guns um you know hunting all, all these things and you know the nra used to be uh, a group that was kind of you know when i grew up was was geared around the hunting community right and uh they they offered courses on hunter safety they promoted these kind of things right i mean sure there was a lot of gun manufacturer trade group kind of stuff going on too but you know the big the biggest reason that people joined was to get access to some of the you know like discounts in the hunting community and and things like this. And I remember it as early as middle school taking a hunter safety class, you know, when I was younger, I think a lot of gun owners and conservatives in general don't quite realize that the NRA, it, it ain't your grandpa's NRA, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not what it used to be over the years. It kind of, shifted and changed uh, when they started getting more involved in politics and working with manufacturing lobbies and things like this. And it eventually sort of evolved to become more or less a combination of a lobbying arm for gun manufacturers and sort of a messaging arm of the Republican Party. I mean, it's really just not a coincidence that, for instance, when at any time a Democrat gets elected, there's this huge messaging campaign around Liberals taking people's guns, which then results in gun manufacturer sales going through the roof, right? And a run on gun stores and all of this. And also results in kind of a hardening of a resolve support around the Republican Party from gun owners, right? These things aren't accidents. I mean, it's just kind of the, the way it works now. And over the years, when they started getting this power, I mean, we we we've all heard about Wayne Lapierre now. He's you know, the the organization essentially became so corrupt that. Wayne LaPierre is under investigation now by the IRS for essentially just taking people's members dues and the money in the NRA and then using them to fund, you know, a millionaire lifestyle that he wanted and lying about it on his taxes. Right. And I just feel like a lot of folks, you know, especially gun owners and folks on the conservative side of the community, don't really don't really grasp that the, the NRA really isn't what it used to be.
0: It's parallel to the Republican Party in that sense. I mean, the Republican Party is also not your grandfather's Republican Party. It true, has very become true. something radicalized. And by the way, Wayne Lapierre is involved with the radical Catholic group, Leonard Leo, and that whole cabal of people at the at the Catholic Information Center in D.C. Something I wasn't else. Aware that, of that. Yeah, yeah. Something else that ties the knot together.
1: But, yeah, I actually didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about the NRA story in Volume Five is it's a little bit different than some of the other parts of volume five, right? The, the NRA story in volume five is less about, it's really less about the 2016 campaign and campaign influence than it is about a broader and larger influence operation overall. Yep. It's kind of a more long running. Insidious. Insidious. Insidious is the word you're yes. looking for.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> and uh, in volume five, they start off basically with uh, a 2013 trip by David Keene, who was then president of the NRA, and Paul, Paul Erickson going to Russia, you know, to meet with Maria Boutna and, and Alexander Torshin, and of course, after that, this love affair blossomed between <laughs> Maria Boutna <laughs> and Paul Erickson, <laughs> right, and... Uh, and the Abbeyard
0: and, and Eloise of our time, <laughs> truly.
1: <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that's where the Mueller report starts, but there's background. I think I think it's useful to know, especially with Torshin, right, because... I think painting a picture of who Torsion is and where he came from paints a better picture of the way Russian influence ops in general work. You know, you realize, that, yeah, you realize that the NRA isn't, this wasn't like their one single primary target to infl- infiltrate Republicans and in the campaign, and everything. This is just one aspect of, of what they do and what they've done, right? So I don't want to spend too much time on ancient Russian history. And I know, Greg, you're, 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 audience probably is already aware of, you know, a lot of things, uh, you know, like the, the Chechen war and things like that and the apartment bombings, but, you know, really briefly when Putin took power, a big part of the way that he consolidated power, when he took over, was a series of apartment bombings that happened in Russia that there's been a lot of speculation about who was actually behind them. Right. Um, and a lot of actual FSB and Russian intelligence, Actually, Alexander Litvinenko himself, a former member of the FSB, has said that yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty likely that the Russian government and the FSB were actually behind the bombings themselves. Putin used this; he essentially blamed Chechen terrorists for the attacks, used this as a way to consolidate power and support under himself by launching a series of incursions, basically starting the the Second Chechen War against uh, Chechnya, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of the backstory. And if you fast forward to, you know, 2004, the the Second Chechen War was officially over for the most part, but there was still violence. There were armed incursions still happening in people's neighborhoods. There's a lot of tension. And there were still, you know, basically Chechen separatists uh, who were still, really pushing to get the, the Russian government out of their business. Right. And that's kind of the backdrop for a really tragic thing that happened in Chechnya, basically in Northern Associa, um There was the, some of the, some of these Chechen separatists terrorists on the first day of school. And I believe it was 2004 when all the parents and kids and teachers were all hanging out, taking photos for the first day of school, outside of school, these Chechen separatists rolled in and, took about 1100 people hostage in the school. They gathered everybody in the school. They had bombs inside. They even had somehow they had weapons stashed under the floorboards inside the school already when they got there. And it turned into a really dark chapter in, in Russian history. If you, you know, if you could say that something's even darker than the apartment bombings, I mean, this is probably it.
0: Yeah. That was really depressing. That story.
1: Was a yeah. And I, I don't, I don't want to delve in it too much, but essentially it lasted about three days, right? On the, on the third day, the, the, the local Chechen officials were so desperate that they called, you know, the former president of Chechnya from the 90s, who was totally persona non grata to the Kremlin. I mean, they had blamed him for a different siege earlier on and basically labeled him a terrorist. He was an enemy of state, right? The Chechen officials were so desperate by the third day of this happening that uh, they, they called him. And he basically said, uh, OK, okay I'll, I'll, I'll risk myself and come try to help with this, right? It's so bad about an hour after the phone call where he confirmed that he was coming all of a sudden there was a massacre at the school so russian forces advanced they they basically advanced on the school with rockets and a tank even and shot the school basically you know caught on fire burned down and i think there were 330 hostages who died and you know over half of them were children it was brutal and ugly and it was you know, it was very bad, and there's a lot of speculation that the reason that, that happened was because this enemy of the state, the former president of Chechnya, was actually on his way over there, and they couldn't have that look right mm-hmm. politically. That Putin couldn't have that politically. You know, give him that kind of power. For, but for whatever the reason, you know, regardless of how it actually happened, multiple witnesses, even one of the terrorists themselves, essentially said that this is the initial bomb that exploded inside the school and started the fire. It it wasn't one of the terrorists that that set it off. It was, you know, the Russian security services advancing on the building and attacking it, right? So why this is relevant is similar to the apartment bombings. This was another opportunity for Putin and his KGB supporters that had kind of propelled them into government to further consolidate, you know, enact some of the plans that they had wanted to enact for a while. So how did Putin frame this? Well, he frames everything. It's the West's fault. It's a conspiracy against Russia. Um, the West is, you know, they're they're making all these boogeymen happen and make making Russia look bad because we're one of the greatest nuclear powers in the world, and they can't have us, and everybody feels threatened by us, and they're doing this to us, so we must be stronger. And he essentially said, like, he said something in effect of Becca, we we can no longer afford to to live in the level of comfort that we have been. We must, you know, in safety, we must lock down, right? Like as if as if they were, you know, everything was going great for them already, and they used it to essentially abolish elections for regional governors in the country they basically just it was an another attack on democracy they used it for as a platform for him right Mm -hmm. and in order to justify this though he needed there were a lot of calls for investigations and he finally acceded to a parliamentary investigation into the school siege right but he couldn't have a real investigation he needed an investigation that would essentially buttress what he was trying to do. Right. Didn't have anything kind of like that was Brett questioned.
2: Kavanaugh FBI investigation. Exactly.
1: exactly. <laughs> right. <Yeah. Fake>
2: investigation.
1: <laughs> right. And so he had, uh, you know, the parliamentary investigation was headed up by a, a friend of his, uh, or at least a close associate of his, a senator named Alexander Torshin. And basically, the parliamentary investigation took about two years to complete in the process one of the investigators, one of the explosive experts quit the investigation because he he said he couldn't couldn't allow himself to be part of it because it was a cover-up. At the end of the investigation, two of the people on his committee refused to sign it because it was a cover-up. But he essentially conducted a parliamentary uh, commission investigation into this that whitewashed the government, the federal government, the Russian federal government's entire role in it, right? He essentially created this whole uh, narrative that the terrorists set off the first bomb. Um, but, of course, Russian security services were acting all according to protocol, oh, as it should be, right? And we you know, tried to do everything in our power to maintain you know, safety for public health. And, in fact, we didn't advance on the school until all the hostages were actually out, which obviously is false. 330 p- hostages died. And there's you know, like dozens of people who watched this whole thing unfold who said that is absolutely not what happened. But, you know, in Putin's Russia, that doesn't really matter. It's, it's all about the narrative. You have a guy who essentially covered up a a massacre of parents and children at a school, Uh, and and that guy was Alexander Torshin, right? So that was that was around two thousand
0: four. And once you you once you do that, I mean, once you do that, what's you know what's throwing what's infiltrating the NRA? Let's (laughs) throw in the U.S. election, you know? Right, right. Who cares?
1: It's just a yeah. It's just a little background on you know who who this guy is. You know, he was a banker before he became a senator in the Russian government. And and Putin's Russia and rising to, you know, being a banker in that era meant you were kind of moving dirty money, right? And that kind of ties into what you mentioned. And around 2012, 2012, uh, the Spanish government was investigating a huge Russian crime ring in Spain uh, that they were running uh, on the island of Mallorca, I think, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there was uh, the Tombovskaya gang. That's what it was called. Okay. Um a Russian organized crime ring uh, operating in Spain and the the investigators there eventually worked their way up using, you know, wiretaps and intercepts and everything. Worked their way up to find out that they, you know, to locate the godfather of this Russian crime ring that was operating in Spain, and they picked up, you know, on intercepts one of the heads of, uh, you know, in Spain, one of the heads of the ring was calling this guy Il Padrino, you know, the godfather. I'm like who is this guy? And they finally found out it's Alexander Torshin. Right. Mm. So it's a guy who essentially was using banks, you know, in early Russia to, to move their money around, um, was, you know, helped Putin cover up uh, a huge massacre, and was also, all this is why he's a senator, right? Yeah. Also running a criminal money laundering organized crime ring in Spain to, to launder. Dirty Russia money. Uh, this is country, this right? is an
0: interesting point to bring up because it it speaks to the overlap in Russia of the intelligence services, organized crime, and their politicians. You know, exactly. there's exactly there's a spot on the Venn diagram, a sweet spot where they all are. <laughs> and this guy's right smack dab in the middle of it. That's why I think-
2: kind of feel like that's the road that we're heading down right now with American politics as well. At really the organization of, of that same, of the Russians, you know, they are looking for us to be at that same sweet spot.
0: Right? Yeah, right. No, no, they want the oligarchy here for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: that's why I think tor- torsion is such an interesting and, and uh, you know, educational character about the way Russia operates, just like you said. I mean, you know, a guy who was a banker, then a senator, he was a senator from, you know, I think up until 2015, from 2001 to 2015. And during that time, He was, you know, covering up Russian state murders and operating a, you know, an organized crime ring in another country to launder money through their real estate. It's good Um, work if you can get it. (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, that was all, you know, from 2004 through, you know, 2012, 2013. In fact, the the Spanish authorities were planning to arrest him in Mallorca. They they actually had a a plan where he was going to, you know, his next trip, his planned trip to Mallorca. Was coming up in the summer of 2013 and they got authorizations and had a plan to arrest him when he got there but he canceled his his flight plans uh, you know folks think that he must have somehow gotten a tip and avoided the trip right um so he evaded uh, prosecution and arrest
0: did you hear what happened on the last narrative podcast
2: all democracy to end they don't think it works they're done with it and you know who are their allies the cokes the mercers the Murdochs.
1: I've seen this movie before. I've, I watched this in South Africa. I know, I know how it plays out. I've got news for the GOP. Yeah. If they think
2: any company is going to invest in Georgia, or if they think any foreign nation is going to invest in Georgia, or if they think they can hold any international event in Georgia,
0: or international sports event in Georgia, they are wrong. Can I just say, as, mm. as delightful as it was for everybody to be like, we're going to cater it, and this and that, that's insane. It's insane that we, that we have to even think in those terms. Mm-hmm. We don't have to cater it. These people should be arrested long before November. End of discussion. I, I don't want people to go to Georgia with cake. Narrative
1: featuring the friends you already know. Look for new podcasts every Thursday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. So that's a little background on that side of the ocean. Now to switch tracks a little bit, to bring it back to the United States, uh, specifically Nashville. There's a there's a, a fellow in Nashville, an attorney named Client uh, Preston. He got his law degree in '95, uh, I think, or passed the bar in '95. In '98, uh, I believe he started his practice um, by you know suing the federal government on behalf of um, his family and some others in the community over um, some property rights issues. I think some of them had uh, lost their home. So I'm not super familiar with the issue, but that's kind of how he got it. There's there's really a great article in the Tennessee and the local Nashville newspaper by uh, Anita Wadwani and Joel Ebert that that just gives so much colorful background about Klein Preston and, um, and uh, sort of, and this again, like, I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not saying necessarily anything specifically about Klein Preston here. I'm not making any allegations, but it is a very colorful picture and it's another story about the way that, you know, gradual influence ops work. After after he did that, shortly um, after he basically started his law career, he somehow was uh, taking out ads in Tennessee and about Ukrainian adoption services. And at some point in the 90s, he started selling Ukrainian vodka. Um, he basically created a company that was, you know, importing and selling Ukrainian. The reason that we know about this, as far as I know, is because Toys R Us gets you with it. The name of the vodka was Kivskaya Rus. And they didn't like that the end of the name was R-U-S. And you know, I was like, we don't want something floating around here that keeps Sky R-U-S. Was well, it even <laughs> a backwards
0: good. R? Because
1: maybe the <laughs> Cyrillic, you know. I... <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I should find a picture of a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I mean, you know, he's he's also got a business called the Russian Language Foundation. He's written six books on Russian law, um, one about the 20, 2011 elections in Russia, and wrote a book called The Art of Getting Paid. It's G I T T I N, apostrophe, paid. That's, that's actually his Twitter handle, by the way, getting paid, just so you know, if you ever <laughs> want to look him up. I think his account's locked now when some of the stories started coming out about him. He locked his Twitter account. But he's also uh, a kind of a longtime friend of Marsha Blackburn. Um, and essentially, he ended up working on Marsha Blackburn, w- or with Marsha Blackburn defending her in a case against uh, campaign finance violations. This was in 2005-ish.
2: I'm sure she never had any.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think she ended up paying like a couple of thousand dollars, you know, the campaign. Slap for on the wrist? Exactly. Exactly. Her campaign paid him for a couple of years. And at the same time, his wife worked... For the campaign, some, and his wife was friends with Marsha Blackburn and her daughter, and Preston also did some uh, legal work for uh, Marshall Blackburn's son-in-law, a startup company that he founded. Uh, he did legal work for them as well, and he, he basically described his relationship with Blackburn as a you know a longtime friend, a family friend, right? So this was around 2005, 2007 that he was working with her. And this article in Tennessean was in 2018, and they managed to to interview him, and at that point, he told them that he had known torsion for about a decade. So it appears that he met torsion around 2008 ish, which happens to be, you know, just a year or two after he had been working with Marshall Blackburn, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. It's
2: just a, a reminder that the Russians play the long game.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: They're kind of known for that.
1: <laughs> exactly, it's kind of this story about this gradual influence, right? It
0: isn't one of the big Twitter accounts that was proven to be fake Tennessee GOP? Wasn't that? Wasn't that? The yes, one?
1: I'm glad you mentioned
0: really? that. Yeah, because you know, did Tennessee I beat you makes... to it? Was that going to be your 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 final point? <laughs> no,
1: i know not at deleted. all it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's interesting. A lot of folks don't talk about Tennessee, but you know, here you have this little nexus, and you know the why was there an account called the TN underscore GOP that ended up getting over a hundred thousand followers and being retweeted by actual Republican officials that was pushing a narrative in 2016 about the Dems stealing the election. Right. Right. Sound familiar, right?
2: Does I mean, that was one of the things with volume five is that you know, in a way, and, and I'm, I'm one of those nerds. The day that the Mueller report came out, I printed it out. I read through it twice. I have it highlighted. I had my notes and my sticky notes all over it. I still have it to this day. I know the Mueller report. When I read the volume five, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, one of the things is, is immediately I thought this is more damning than the Mueller report. And one of the things is, is that they did clearly come in writing this report. They were trying to show you how intelligence works and how spy kind of infiltration works. Their focus was different. And I always, I thought of it as I was reading through as a spider web. And, you know, Putin is is sitting there in the center, but, there's a great quote at one point, and and Greg, throughout the years that I've been on Twitter, you've always been kind of bringing back the whole Russia thing and Trump thing to how mobs work, kind of right, thing. Right. Right. Sure. And that came through a little bit in this as well. And I there was something and I made a note to myself um, on it that I I said it sounds like Trump, but. They say some taskings for this activity came directly from Putin through quarterly meetings he held with a group of approximately 50 Russian oligarchs. Oligarchs would receive suggestions or critiques, being in quotes, from Putin. Participants would treat such suggestions, which, again, in quotes, and this takes me back to Michael Cohen, um, some of his stuff, But participants would treat such suggestions as directives from Putin, even if they were not explicitly stated as such, with the understanding that, again, quotes, there would be consequences if the oligarchs did not follow through. And so to me, it's like there's this spiderweb with Putin at the center. You've got these 50 oligarchs, and each of them then seemed to create their own set of web threads, one of them being like, I mean, I don't know if if Toshin was sitting at the table, but from what you're saying, he may very well have been one of those 50 oligarchs. And he then sets up his own little stream through, which we now know there's a, I mean, Maria Bucina is a self-confessed, pled guilty Russian spy who was working with them, you know? So, and she was trying to infiltrate through the NRA, but each one of these guys had separate threads. So it was like, you're going through the NRA, we have a back door through to Marsha Blackburn. Um, You know, there were all of these various threads. And to me, that was one of the things that was so interesting about volume five is these tentacles. I'm going from spiders to octopuses. And I'm going <laughs> to reference moles too because it's like they were all digging through their own little ways to infiltrate. And I kind of just picture this this web. And from those fifty oligarchs, they were absolutely um, targeting Republican politicians through the NRA, through those types of relationships, you know. And so. When, when Marsha Blackburn is, is suddenly, you know, getting in the way of, of key election votes or, or things like that, those things seem to be very connected as well. This is a criminal enterprise <laughs> that is on an extremely large scale. And until I read volume five, it it just really talked about how widespread this was Um, and, and how it impacts. I mean, and when I mentioned about key election, Marsha Blackburn is also one of these folks who is going to be helping to evade the conversation about gun rights activists when we've had, you know, over 100 shootings in less than 80 days in this year. This is part of what they're doing with Putin at the top saying, I want you guys to go and sow discord and to create chaos in America. They've been successful. That's been clear. January 6th was the example of how successful they've
3: been.
0: Absolutely. And it's absolutely yeah. going back to the NRA. And this is a, a point that I was, I wanted to make and I've made before, but who wants, no controls whatsoever on guns. Most Americans want that. I think 95% might be even higher, mid to high 90s percent want right. some regulations on like assault rifles and things like that.
2: Even NRA members agree. Yes, of
0: course. NRA, yes. the, your grandfather's NRA. The NRA, it, it, when Aaron was growing up, wants that. Mm-hmm. Most people in the NRA who don't realize where, where the organization has gone want that. Who doesn't want it is is Putin. Because what it, what it creates is, first of all, we're all here shooting each other, which mm-hmm. makes us look bad and causes chaos. And two, it makes Russia look better by comparison. So Putin wants the United States weak. He wants us sick. He wants us killing each other. That's what he wants. And the NRA, in my view, that, that's why they're doing these things. It's pretty clear With the money that has flowed in through torsion and other people in that group and the influence that Bettina had, that Mm. it's not just let's get close to these politicians, it's let's influence the way these politicians think about certain things to benefit us.
2: And I'm gonna go one, I'm gonna add one point. I actually think that they also have, and again, Manafort and Klimnik were experts at, at manipulating elections they know a certain type of of Trump voter. They know their base really well. And they know that the talking points around guns, we're gonna come and take away your guns, is a trigger that will make sure that those people, no matter what, will actually vote. I mean, literally we're seeing it with like COVID. Trump could go and kill their families with COVID and they will still vote Trump into office because of two things, in my opinion, abortion and gun control. Those are the two triggers that are kind of used. So they they know that it's being used as a way to manipulate that that rabid base. Portion. And
0: they there, there. That's a good point. It's also completely nonsensical to believe both of those things. So. If you want to have no government intervention at all with relates to guns, why do you then want the government to be fascistic and, and you know, regulating women's bodies? Mm. It makes no sense. It's it, it, the, the underlying logic is completely cognitively dissident. Aaron, mm. do you have more to add on on Maria Butina a little bit? And then I'll do Georgie P. And then we'll wind up. Sure, yeah,
1: okay. sure. Yeah. So, you know, it, as the as volume five states, you know, around 2013, you know, Uh, David Keene, who was then the head of the NRA, and and Paul Erickson took a trip to to Russia to visit with Torshin. But prior to that, two years earlier, in 2011, this national attorney, Klein Preston, actually introduced Alexander Torshin to David Keene. Um, I don't think this is in Volume 5, and I don't see it mentioned very often. But essentially, two years before any of this started that was was documented in the Mueller Report, or or Volume 5, sorry, Klein Preston had made that connection. And also in that same year, Alexander Torshin and Maria Butina had established a, you know, a little NRA sort of like organization in Russia, right? Mm-hmm. And this is all, you know, folks like Klein Preston and and a lot of conservatives think like, yeah, Russia's pro-gun rights, right? They're trying to set up their, you know, Second Amendment, you know, gang like we have. And they want, they want you know, really, you know, great, great gun rights for all their individuals and personal freedom and all these things, right? It's not true. Russia's not Not at all. (laughs) Yeah, Putin's not going to allow you know a Second Amendment in Russia. It's it's all a ruse, right? It's all a way to to infiltrate and convince these folks that you know that we're oh we're like you we share values all these things, right? It's this huge influence operation, and it's you know it started as far back as 2011. Maria Butina was actually an employee of Torsions when he was at the central bank as well, and so there's all this overlap between the government, the banking. Organized crime and the intelligence influence operations, right? All these folks move, like you were saying, the Venn diagrams, this tight little circle in the middle where they all mm-hmm. sort of overlap. From that point, you look at 2011, Preston introduces torsion to David Keene, the president of the NRA. A couple of years later, David Keene and Paul Erickson make a trip to Russia. Paul Erickson falls in love, falls in love with Maria Budna. <laughs> she moves to the United States, right? gets an apartment over here everything's going great then she starts really moving around these NRA circles right because there are tons of conservative republican officials and operatives who are at all these nra conferences right and in meetings and this is like a nexus of connective tissue for them to get connected uh into the republican movement so it's 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 a lot of folks talk about the money, right? Yes, there's some money issues in Russian money in the NRA and things like this. But the bigger story really is the broad influence campaign that Maria Butin was kind of the spear tip for inside the NRA, right? Client Preston kind of started the ball rolling, and uh, he's kind of, I, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, it seems like sort of a, a useful idiot for these guys that, you know, oh, we share the same interests and values, and kind of leading them along. They actually. <laughs> Portion convinced client Preston that Preston was helping him write Russian laws. Like Preston, <laughs> Preston thinks he's so well versed on Russian law that he's actually helping a Russian senator write write laws and teaching him about Russian law. Uh, you know, so that's just how they use some of these folks. And and then we know what happened from there, right? We know that Putin, you know, started. There's she's like the. Uh, Forrest Gump of Republican photo ops, right? You see her with, you know, Rick Santorum, you know. The world
2: is Maria.
0: (laughs) Right. Oh, there's connections, all right. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Connections, yes.
3: I
2: mean, absolutely, the NRA, that was so interesting. One thing that did catch me, that I did catch on the report that Bettina did which is a little bit separate to the to the NRA, um, but again leads back to the Trump campaign. But um, it feels like these fifty oligarchs, with each of them has their own kind of team, and like you said, Bettina was spearheaded and, and brought over to the U.S. to infiltrate the you know the Republican Party basically, and it's clear that she's just really working every angle that she can. But there was an, a note about the, a DM that went on between Bettina and, and somebody, I, I can't recall who it was right now, but she said right now, and this is, so this is a Twitter DM from the Maria Bettina files that she says right now, I would rather meet with, with Carter Page. He's Trump advisor for the RF and heads the pro-Russian group. He was in Moscow at a meeting with Putin last year. That, to me, also took Carter Page and put him at a whole other level. And it was really interesting because it kind of almost feels as though these different oligarchs, these 50 oligarchs, each with their own threads, were almost stumbling off of each other. I kind of felt like Carter Page was one thread. Manafort and Kalimnik were another thread. Maria Boutino was another thread. They didn't even know what each other was doing, but there were just so many different operations for influence that they were kind of all tripping over each other in, in you know, as well in, in their circles. So that kind of took me off on a whole Carter Page thing too, but we'll, we'll put that aside because I know that you're going to go to George P. But um, I know that with Butina, it was just, you know, here's, we have a admitted Russian spy, <laughs> who's sitting there saying that Carter Page was meeting with Putin directly in Moscow in back in 2017, and Carter Page is on the Trump campaign. But there's no collusion again. There's no evidence of any cooperation between any of these parties. So it's yeah, right. just a, yeah. And, I just wanted George... to get that in there, too. That was one thing that jumped out about the Maria Bettina for me. But uh, I didn't
0: realize that the, that that she and Carter Page had any sort of contact. I, I As the kids say, I ship that. I think those two should wind up getting married. It would be a nice, <laughs>
2: well, <I think> a <laughs> nice <laughs> way to end. an intro. She was so impressed with Carter Page. She said, right now, I would rather meet with Carter Page. She was like a fangirl of Carter Page, and she was like, this is the man with the influence. He's meeting in Moscow with Putin. And I think, it, I, I have to go back, it might have even been torsion. I think they were kind of like, stay away, he, that's a separate thread kind of thing, but um it was just so obvious that carter page had his his things that she was almost fan this russian spy is like fangirling over over carter page and like he's in with Putin. can another,
0: i another another bald guy that should have been on that sexy bald men list carter page sure. uh, <laughs> and the russian know, he's, language version yeah right he's <laughs> one of those characters like that you know early on you know kind of
1: was was a thing, and well, but they kind of, you know, went away and fizzled off. Folks didn't really talk about it, and then you just kind of think, almost see him as an ancillary character in the story, really. But later on, you learn that, you know, there are other things that you didn't know. He's one of those characters. George Papadopoulos is similar, right?
0: Yeah, Papadopoulos. I, my, my sense with Carter Page, and I got this, I, I did the deep dive a little bit into the Papadop stuff. My sense with Page is that even the Trump people knew that he was a little bit crazy and obvious, and they kind of had cool. to put a little distance. With Papadopoulos, they, you know, he was really lobbying to get in there. He wanted to get into the Trump campaign. He wound up, when they wouldn't hire him, he wound up working uh, as a paid campaigner for Ben Carson, which is, I can't imagine a more dead-end job than that, right? <laughs>
3: right.
0: <laughs> the Ben Carson campaign staffer. And then he came aboard. He was, oh, he was in London working for uh, a law, a, a not-for-profit law group there, and he kept emailing them, kind of begging to get involved with this. And it, his timing was right. And they were like, "Yeah, yeah, we're putting together this group of uh, foreign policy advisors," and they named him on the group. And this was in the first week of March, I think, something like that in 2016. He was already like, as soon as they announced his name. Mifsud, the 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 Maltese professor who was living in London and is pretty clearly a Russian spy, was already trying to recruit him. I mean, I don't know what the world record is for. (laughs) Hey, you're now part of the Trump team. Congratulations! And hi, I'm a Russian spy. But he, it was really, it was like,
3: (laughs) I I think 15 seconds is the record.
0: You, we've reached the singularity of yeah i don't know you put stairway on and by the time the, the, the <laughs> you know by the time there's a, a bustle in your hedgerow he's already being recruited by this guy so um what's what's amazing about about uh papadopoulos in in hindsight and funny as well, as because <laughs> they knew right away there was the guy clovis sam clovis knew as soon as Papadopoulos went to the first and only in-person meeting of the foreign policy, there was that picture on Trump's Instagram where they're all sitting around a table and Papadopoulos is right in the middle of this table with all these older, obviously, you know, white guys. <laughs> uh, and um, Clovis was like, this guy's a joke. You know, he knew right away. No, we're, we're, d- we're done with you, you're, you're out. But he didn't kind of get the message. Papadopoulos thought in his mind, I have to make sure, I have to get to Putin. I have to make sure that Trump can access Putin as if there weren't a thousand better ways to do that. Right. It's like we need this guy. He could probably pick up the phone and make one call and get to Putin, Trump, if he wanted to. But no, we want you, 27-year-old George Papadopoulos. You're our guy. So he he he's working with Mifsud. He's trying to figure out what to do. And Mifsud tells him, I think this is in April of 16, Oh, my God, I've just come back from Moscow. They have these emails. They've got dirt on Hillary. It's going to end it. And Papadopoulos can't contain his his amazement because he's got this incredible national, you know, he's got intelligence, like real intelligence that might be useful to the campaign. So what does he do?
2: The
0: The two cardinal sins of anyone who wants to work in intelligence, which is, one, you don't open your mouth, and two, got to hold your liquor. Because he goes drinking with, with Downer, the Australian uh politician there, the diplomat, gets hammered. Well, if there's, there's some funny things, is that even in the volume five, you could tell they probably were laughing when they were writing this part of, about Papadopoulos, because they're like, Well, in one thing he said he had one gin and tonic, but in the other thing he said he had three gin and tonics, both under oath. We're pretty sure maybe we're gonna go maybe with three.
2: So that was funny.
1: Because I'm not, I'm not sure there's I'm not sure if we could get a perjury charge on drink count, but yeah. <laughs> but the in this, in this the case, is,
0: you know, <laughs> right. uh, so he <laughs> basically he because he says this to the Australian diplomat, diplomat notifies Canberra, and when stuff starts happening, and they realize, oh Canberra. shit, there are emails. They notify the CIA or whatever the diplomats in Washington, and then that is what triggers the FBI investigation into Trump. <laughs> so this fucking idiot gets excited because this Russian handler tells him something, gets hammered, drunk with another diplomat, and blabs about it. That brings about the the fall of this. And maybe they get away with it a little more if the, if the investigation doesn't start when it did. You know, maybe things are right. are more able to be hidden
2: away. So, I, I think back to the Forrest Gump reference before too. I feel like there were quite a few Forrest Gumps in this story, but oh my god, Crossfire really
0: Hurricane is all him. He starts <laughs> his is the the face, the the, the 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 you know the loose lip that launched a thousand ships, right? Well, it's this am- guy. It's amazing
1: because you know, hardly there's so many people who don't realize this, right? Because mm-hmm. there's been so much noise in the media yes. environment about how it all started and the investigation into the investigators and all this. This is it's part of the it's part of their messaging strategy, right? They just they they put so much noise. Bannon said flood the zone with shit, right? Yep. So oh, orders, he's right?
0: Good at that. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: So and and, you know, I in, in my theory is we, the the reason for the flood the zone with shit is that they could put it so much out there, but they always have a singular message that they will over, over and over and over and over again. So when everybody in the country hears a thousand things, a thousand times, and none of it really makes sense, and none of it's really repeated, but yet through all the noise and the fog, there's this one beaconing repetitive phrase that gets repeated over and over again, and that's what people hear, right? And that's right. what they take away. No and collusion it, or whatever. Yeah, okay. I mean, the Democrats right.
2: are, are getting killed on the, stra- on the messaging war constantly, and that's one thing that drives me crazy is that, you know, the Republicans— are only as good as the talking points that they trot out constantly that are supplied to them probably by some of the people who were sitting around that table with Putin kind of thing. And one of their clear talking points forever was that the whole Russian thing was witch hunt or goose chase or whatever it is. But their whole thing was that they claimed that Carter Page should never have been you know, listened to and that what Rubio also tried to do is he tried to claim that this was all, that this whole investigation started over that steel dossier and the false premise of listening in on Carter Page when really, no, you had a, a, a drunk-ass George Papadopoulos who said to the U.S. government, hey, by the way, we're doing lots of legal stuff (laughs) to try to get dirt on Hillary, you know. And, you know, one of the things that Volume 5 really brought home is that it would be so easy to kill that talking point of the false premise of how it started. Because Carter Page, this was one of the things that stood out to me was... He actually admitted to the FBI, and I think it had come out before volume five, but volume five just takes a whole bunch of information and puts it all together really well. And he actually admitted, yeah, I'm on the books with Russian intelligence, on the books, (laughs) like (laughs) on the books. And I even looked that up. It's like, that's speak for, yeah, I'm a, a paid informant, I'm a spy for Russian intelligence but how dare they try to listen in <laughs> you know how try how dare they try to investigate Carter Page well the reality is is that George Papadopoulos was this useful idiot but we've kind of characterized Carter Page as a useful idiot when I'm not actually sure he might be a little bit more devious and manipulative to that if he's meeting with Putin in Moscow, according to Maria Butina, he's self-confessed on the books with Russian intelligence. And he was on the same foreign policy committee as well. And there was a great story in volume five about how when some of the dirt on Carter Page was starting to come out, that he had gone to Russia and was speaking and basically blasting the U.S. administration and it was all approved by the campaign. That's when the campaign kind of separated themselves from Carter Page. And there's a, a, a little piece with an email from from Eric Trump to Hope Hicks, and they're exchanging emails. And Eric Trump says, "You know, what's the story with this guy? Is he even technically part of the part of the campaign?" And email from. Hope picks to Eric Trump about Carter Page is, well, it has now come to light that he has ties to the Russian government. So therefore, please make sure his NDA was in fact countersigned. Send him a copy and please ask him to stop talking. He is not being helpful. And he then (laughs) announced that he was um, he, he announced to Eric Trump, "I'm stepping away from the campaign for a little while." But you know, they're trying to distance themselves from from Carter Page. You don't sign, you don't get announced to the Foreign Policy Committee and sign an NDA with the campaign, and then the campaign says, "Well, we don't really know who that guy is." Like they made him out as some crazy outlier when he was actually he. Had, there's emails back and forth that. Yes, you can go to Russia and you can talk. Maybe just don't talk about how close you were to the campaign, as opposed to George Papadopoulos, who with one gin and tonic is like, I'm part of the campaign.
0: (laughs) 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 There was one there was one communication between Papadopoulos and Carter Page that's mentioned in the report. I think it might have been in one of the footnotes where basically George called Carter and Carter was like, please stop calling me. You're annoying. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, because I think George it, Papadopoulos was the useful idiot, and Carter Page was made out to be, but I think he was a little smarter than that. <laughs> I, he,
0: he was a tiny bit, uh, uh, yeah, a tiny, yeah. tiny, maybe tiny, tiny bit smarter. It is. Well, it, it is amazing.
2: The full story is, on Carter Page is is the sense I got after reading Volume Five too.
0: It is
1: amazing seeing the messaging machine, though. I mean, when you you know you look at what what actually how this played out, right? Because in hindsight, you could see that at some point early on in the investigation, a lot of GOP attorneys and strategists and other folks dug through all this and realized that, okay, we found a weak point a technicality, and it's about Carter Page and FISA, right? So now we need to make the conversation about FISA warrants. And and then you see the messaging campaign start to head that way. It's all so deliberate, right? So mm. then they start flooding the zone, all this noise and everything else, and then they repeat FISA, 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 card page, uh, you know, was, and throw. Yeah, that was and, where
2: th- I was going with it. Is they they made it into this talking point to try and and basically take the rug out of the Russian FBI investigation by claiming a technicality that didn't right. actually really exist because no you know with George Papadopoulos you know sitting there and getting drunk and going off to Canberra mm-hmm. and talking to the well to, talking to the guys who then go back to Canberra and say by the way you know that that the Trump campaign is infiltrated with russian interference maybe we should let the fbi know <laughs> you know right. it was a complete legitimate start to yeah. really questioning what is going on here. And one of the things that's so frustrating about what Rubio did is that there is so much, you know, uh, one of their great talking points is a nothing burger. This is an everything burger. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. Everything. This is the works. I mean, they put everything on this burger in this report. Yet what Rubio did is, oh, it's a nothing burger. We now have you know, vast exhaustive investigation that showed no collusion and they're making all of it go away when in actuality, one of the things that's very clear in volume five is that there's damning information in here, but the most damning information was actually redacted by the Republicans themselves on the committee. Mm. How do we know that? Because the Democrats in their end section said, there is a lot that is needlessly classified. There is a lot of extra redacting. Again, this goes back to the Bill Barring. Bill Barr did it with the Mueller report. Rubio and the Republicans, which includes Tom Cotton and a couple of other key Republicans here, they actually went through and redacted so that the worst was there. And the way they put it in, the Democrats were putting it is they were deliberately trying to hide information in volume five to protect the fact that Russia was still interfering in 2020. Right now, we're in a position that we're watching all of these laws be, inter, you know, put into place about voter suppression in 2022. But what we're not talking about as much is the fact that Russian interference and these same campaigns that were used in 2016 and were very much used in 2020 are being used again for 2022. And you know, the thing about Volume Five is, as much as we want to move on from it. It's not going away. It's actually just being more cooperatively hidden by the Republican Party of just how much is actually going on here that they're going to such great lengths to, you know, protect Putin and screw our democracy.
0: The senators, by the way, the Republican senators on the on the committee are burr who wound up signing off on it and then got summarily removed rich rubio blunt cotton cornin and ben's ass i'm sorry ben sass ben, ben sass, sass. <laughs> right sorry couldn't, couldn't resist right. um so what one last bit about about carter page and then we should we should wind down um mm-hmm. which is the punchline of the story is that not only did he did he did he fuck you know, the Trump people, he also fucked the Russians because Mifsud, after this happened, had to go to ground. He's gone. He's, he's been off the grid for two years now. That's yeah. true. That whole Russian cell wound up getting, getting thrown out. And I think that ultimately, whatever happened with, with Trump, this hurt Putin. The fact that this came out and we know about it and Biden knows about it. I realize that not much has happened in terms of consequence yet, but right. something is going to. So, and think about how many
1: assets they've had to burn as part of all of this. Yeah, yeah. Like Ms. food you know? Yeah. yeah. The, yeah.
2: But the other thing that was overwhelming is look at how many assets they have. And wow. that's right. becoming even clearer to me. But yeah, so just to clarify, Biden actually, you know, he has definitely done, done some things. There's still mm-hmm. a lot more. But again, oh, sure. putting putting a, a, a bounty on the head of Kalimnik for 250000 is a good sign. And I, I, you know, that they're really going after this. And I have a feeling Merrick Garland, you know, I still feel as though, number one, I have sympathy for how much work he has on his plate. <laughs> number two is I feel like we have to be patient for him to get his, his feet under his desk kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I but agree. I don't think he's going away from this either. But, you know, we in the public... Really, I, you know, I wrote this article about Rubio because I I really don't want Rubio's actions in kind of trying to whitewash this whole thing to go away. He, He spin doctored it. He pulled a bill bar. And the reality is, is that volume five is a wealth of information that we should really resurrect because it's not that it's over. We might be sick of talking about Russia, but Russia is not sick of interfering in our, in our democracy and they're still doing it.
0: Amen. That, that's a, Absolutely. that's a perfect way to end. I think um, <laughs> this has been, thank you guys so much for coming. This has been such a great, a, a great conversation. We have Aaron Harris clearing the fog on Twitter, um, which is a, you know, both of you have great uh, Twitter accounts to follow and also the author of one really excellent piece on Prevail called The Ukraine Thing. Allison Green at Grassroots Speak and now writing at DC Report. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sofia Tarashenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's g r e g o l e a r.com. Until next time, we shall prevail.